0: Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate, lots of questions swirling around like confetti, lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain, sleepless nights, shallow breathing, Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a saint's split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Today, an important topic about which I'm asked a lot of questions, the separation date. What is it? When does it happen? Is there such a thing as a legal separation? I wanted to tackle some of these questions because it's often a misunderstood area of family law. And there may be legal consequences to your not realizing you may be separated, or thinking you are, and in fact, the marriage continues. For the purposes of today's discussion, I will be focusing on married couples that separate, and I will be referring to Canada's Divorce Act, which is the legislation, written law, relevant to this issue. We do not have in Canada similar legislation for common-law spouses, And that is primarily because the separation date, the actual date on which the relationship ends, is not as legally relevant for common-law spouses as it is for married spouses. What do you mean here, AJ? Give me an example, you might say. Okay, here's one. There are three bases on which you can obtain a divorce in Canada. The most commonly claimed is a one-year separation. In other words, the court can grant a divorce to a couple who have been separated for one year and are able to establish that. Here, when the clock actually starts ticking is relevant to the calculation of the one-year period. So crystallizing the separation date is important. These considerations are not relevant for common-law spouses because there's no marriage and therefore no request for a divorce. So that is one example of a legal claim which is affected by the actual separation date for married spouses but not for common-law spouses. When a common-law couple separates may be relevant to spousal support, and this is something you should discuss with your lawyer. I'm not going to say the separation date is never relevant for common-law relationships, but establishing the date is more common and more important when marriages end. So, how do we establish a separation date for common-law spouses? There is no legal prescription, but most family law lawyers use the same measuring stick, so to speak, as they do for people who are married, and I will talk about that shortly. In order to have a meaningful discussion about a separation date, I say that we need to go back to basic principles, and that is what the law says about the issue. Let's take a look at Section 8 of the Divorce Act. This is federal legislation, meaning it applies across Canada, and it contains specific sections addressing the breakdown of a marriage and the separation date. So here is Section 8, and I will break it down into manageable chunks for the purposes of our discussion, because it is a bit dry. Subsection 2 is entitled Breakdown of Marriage, and this is what it says. Subsection 2. Breakdown of a marriage is established only if A. The spouses have lived separate and apart for at least one year immediately preceding the determination of the divorce proceeding, and were living separate and apart at the commencement of the proceeding, or B, the spouse against whom the divorce proceeding is brought, has, since the celebration of marriage, one eye committed adultery, or two eyes treated the other spouse with physical or mental cruelty of such a kind as to render intolerable the continued cohabitation of the spouses. So, Part A deals with a breakdown of a marriage, a separation essentially, in situations where the spouses have lived, quote, separate and apart, close quote, and this wording is important to note for at least one year prior to, and this is key as well, the determination of the divorce proceeding. People often ask me, when can I file for a divorce? Here's the answer, and subsection A gives it to us. You can file any time after the separation, but the court will grant you a divorce only once a year has passed since the separation. In subsection B, the Divorce Act talks about two other grounds, as we call them, for a request for a divorce. And those are adultery and cruelty. And again, I receive many questions about these grounds. Yes, they are available. But I'm going to tell you that they are very rarely used these days. Not because adultery and cruelty have become uncommon. Sadly, that is not the case. Most people proceed with a divorce on the basis of a one-year separation because it's the simplest, cleanest way to seek a divorce. All you prove is the marriage and the separation. If you claim adultery, the process is a lot more complex, requires further proof, and may in fact take a lot longer and be a lot more expensive than simply proceeding on the basis of a one-year separation. So talk to your lawyer about this issue, the basis for your divorce. Returning to the Divorce Act, Subsection 3 of Section 8 gives us further direction on dealing with the separation date. It's entitled, Calculation of Period of Separation. This subsection expands further on subsection 2a, and by way of reminder, that was the subsection talking about living separate and apart for a period of one year. Here's what it says. Subsection 3. For the purposes of paragraph 2a, a. Spouses shall be deemed to have lived separate and apart for any period during which they lived apart, and either of them had the intention to live separate and apart from the other. I want to pause here before I go on to tell you what B says. Note, please, two phrases in this subsection. Lived apart and Either of them had the intention to live separate and apart from the other. Would you like me to translate that from legalese into understandable language? Okay, I will. The keys here are that to be separated, one of the two spouses must want to be so. In other words, separated. And second, that they live apart. You will note the section does not say physically apart. I will return to these two phrases shortly and expand on them. Let me just finish off telling you about the rest of this subsection. I'm going to read it and then translate. B. A period during which spouses have lived separate and apart shall not be considered to have been interrupted or terminated, one little I, by reason only, that either spouse has become incapable of forming or having an intention to continue to live separate and apart or of continuing to live separate and apart of the spouse's own volition. If it appears to the court that the separation would likely have continued if the spouse had not become so incapable. Or two little eyes by reason only that the spouses have resumed cohabitation during a period of, or periods totaling, not more than 90 days with reconciliation as its primary purpose. This subsection essentially deals with, number one, situations of mental incapacity, or at least incapacity to form an intention to continue to live separate and apart. A rarely used section of the Divorce Act, but it's there if needed. And number two, the other part of the subsection, the two little eyes, is relevant to everyday life. Why? Because couples reconcile, or at least try to put their marriages back together. This section says that you can try to reconcile without interrupting the original separation date if you do so for a period or periods totaling no more than 90 days. If you go past those 90 days and separate again, a new separation date is established. So, here is a practical example. A couple separates on January 1. On March 1, they begin to live together again and attend marriage counseling. They do that for 60 days, then they separate again. In this situation, their separation date would still be January 1. Let's go back to the intention part. Remember, the section says either of them had the intention to live separate and apart from the other. Why is this important? Because it means that only one spouse can trigger a separation. There does not have to be agreement on a separation. Over the years, I have had clients who have said, I don't want to separate so we are not in fact separated. Well, I can imagine it must be hurtful to be on the receiving end of the other spouse's decision to separate when that is not something you want. But from a legal perspective, the marriage does not continue simply because one spouse does not want it to end. Again, one spouse can trigger the separation by forming the intention to end the marriage. When I explain this issue to my clients, I sometimes say to them, if the marriage is over for you, the marriage is over. Now, To affect the separation, you need to communicate that intention you have, that decision you have made in your head and in your heart somehow. Your spouse needs to know. What I mean here is that you can't just think of yourself as separated, only in your head for five years and carry on as before. Nothing in your marriage changes. You continue to travel together, bank together, The only difference is now you think of yourself as separated. That is not the law when it comes to triggering the separation. You need to communicate your intention as to the end of the marriage to the other spouse. And you need to act like a separated person. In family law, in addition to legislation, we also have case law, and those are decisions made by judges, often interpreting or even expanding on what the legislation says. And yes, we have a lot of case law on the meaning of the separation date, what it takes to trigger it, and importantly, what happens if the parties do not agree on the separation date. Believe me, a lot of case law. Here are some common themes and answers to common questions in this area how does a spouse communicate their intention to separate to the other well verbally is one option by letter or email and this may be a letter from the separating spouse or their lawyer A letter would read something like, I'm retained by so-and-so, and he or she has advised me your marriage has come to an end. We would like to start discussions about issues arising out of the separation. Again, it takes only one spouse to end the marriage, but the other spouse must know about this decision, so it needs to be communicated to them somehow. Sometimes the decision to separate is clear based on the circumstances. For example, one of the spouses moves out or moves out of the marital bed into the basement, takes all their clothes out of the master closet, and cancels a family vacation. So the context can speak volumes too. Speaking of context, what happens if spouses do not agree on their separation date? This actually happens more often than one might think because the separation date is relevant to equalization, for example. This is Ontario's mechanism for dealing with property and debts on separation. What one spouse pays to the other by way of property division, we call it an equalization payment, may depend on the separation dates. So there are actually cases in which the parties do not agree and the family court judge needs to sort out the issue to make a decision about it. Let's say the parties attend marriage counseling and during one of the sessions, Susan tells Mary that she considers their marriage over. Now, let's consider... Two scenarios flowing out of this initial set of facts. In scenario number one, when they return home from the counseling session, Susan moves into the basement and removes the wedding photo from the mantelpiece. The next day, she tells Mary they should speak to a realtor about selling the house. On Facebook, Mary changes her status to separated She also calls the kids' school and tells them that she and Mary are separated but will work together to do what is best for the kids. In scenario number two, Susan sends Mary an email when they come home from the counseling session in which she says she's sorry but she had to make the decision because she's no longer happy. Mary is very, very upset by the separation, and not much else happens for the next 10 months. In the sense that, on the surface at least, Mary and Susan continue to be a married couple and behave like a married couple. A year after the session at which Susan announced the separation, she wants to press on. She goes to a lawyer who writes a letter to Mary. In the letter, the lawyer identifies a date 12 months earlier as the separation date. Mary says, no, this is not the separation date. Yes, I got an email from Susan, but she changed her mind. She did not move out. We all stayed in the house. We went to the kids' recitals at school. I even gave Susan a birthday present and she was very appreciative. She told me so. So now we have spouses who do not agree on the separation date. How would this issue be resolved by the court? What else would the court want to know about this couple? How did they behave during the period after Susan's separation date, after the counseling session? From case law... We know that judges consider a whole host of factors here. For example, if someone were to hypothetically observe Mary and Susan through the window of their home during the period following the counseling session, would they look like a married couple? Would they behave as one? Whether a couple sleeps together in one bed or has sexual relations or not, is not a determinative factor here, because for lots of different reasons, many intact couples sleep separately or are not intimate. But if someone takes all their stuff, their clothes, their bathroom stuff, and moves into the basement, that may be indicative of something. And along with other factors may suggest separation what other factors well are the parties still eating meals together do they do each other's laundry do they shop for groceries together are they taking vacations together and going to family events with each other's extended family has either communicated to the outside world, so to speak, that a separation has taken place. If after the counseling session, Susan joined a private Facebook group for separated spouses and has been posting in it for the last 12 months, sharing the challenges that come with being separated and continuing to live in the same house, that would be a factor the court would take into account. What about finances? Has everything remained the same? What about the fact that following the counseling session, Susan opened a separate account and started to deposit her pay there and then made sure there was enough in the joint account to cover all the usual expenses? Is that something the court would consider relevant? Yes. What about the renovations Susan and Mary had planned for their home? Is what happened to them relevant to establishing the separation date? It may be. In scenario number two, Susan called the contractor after the last counseling session, and after that call, all preparations for the renovations, meetings with the contractor, and so on, stopped. 12 months later, Mary says they only postponed the renovations because lumber got very expensive, but they had planned to press on with them soon. Susan says, no, we had a discussion, Mary and I, and we specifically agreed that the renovations would be canceled because we were separated. It's a she said, she said. Well, the contractor may have to be called as a witness. What was John Smith, the contractor, told about the renovations? Were they cancelled or postponed? When the separation date is in dispute, the exercise that follows is akin to putting together a puzzle. To create the complete picture, many pieces will have to come together. You cannot see the picture by looking at a single piece. Each side puts together facts in support of their separation date, and then the court decides whose evidence is more compelling. I want to come back to a point I raised early on and touched on again several minutes ago when I talked about Susan joining that private Facebook group for separated people. She posted about the challenges of being separated and continuing to live in the same house. There is a common misconception among the public that in order to be separated, two spouses have to live apart, in other words, in two separate residences. That is not the case. There is such a thing as living separate and apart under the same roof. Many couples, for example, continue to live in the matrimonial home after the separation. And there can be various reasons for this, financial, strategic, and there are others. Remember, the relevant sections of the Divorce Act say nothing about the parties living in two separate places. They talk about the spouse's living apart, but that is not necessarily a physical separation as in two residences. Living apart here means not living like a married couple, not acting like one. All those factors I touched on earlier, the pieces of the puzzle. So if two years ago you told your spouse the marriage was over, you told your family and friends you were separated, you closed the joint account, you started doing your own laundry, you have slept in separate beds since then and have not taken any holidays together, then you may very well be separated already. What about a legal separation? Is there such a thing? I raise this issue because many people are under the impression that they need to register the separation somewhere to make it legal. For example, someone might come to me and say, I told my wife six months ago I did not want to be married anymore, but I now have to make it legal. We do not register separations anywhere. Separation, as I have discussed in this episode, is a question of fact. If this man told his wife six months ago, that he considered the marriage over, and since then he has behaved like a separated spouse, then the marriage is over. And the separation date was the date on which he told her of his decision. To me, people who contact me for legal assistance are human beings first, clients second. So I can't ever talk about separation from just a legal perspective, The human aspect is ever-present and deserves mention as well. In previous episodes, I have talked a lot about the emotional, psychological, and even physical challenges that often come with separation. If you are experiencing any such difficulties, know that you are not alone and get help. Grief comes in many different forms and over different periods of time. No two human beings are exactly alike. So the way you may react to a separation is as unique as you are. And these comments are relevant not just for those who are on the receiving end of the news that a relationship is over, Even those who make the decision to separate often experience a whole range of impactful emotions around their decision. There is help out there. Support when you need it from family, friends, counselors, spiritual advisors, doctors, many others. The point is you do not have to go through it alone. Get help if you are struggling. It's important. And give yourself a break because you are likely feeling a lot of pressure from different directions. The goal is to navigate your way to a sane split. The road may not be straight or smooth, but you will get there. Stay informed. Don't ignore your heart and soul and how you feel. Keep your eyes open and press on. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.